with us. You know, life isn't a straight road, is it? I can remember back in college, back in college, I had this red Civic SI, right? And it was souped up, had the dual overhead cam and the racing suspension and the racing clutch. And man, that baby could corner, you know? Like it was straight off the set of Fast and the Furious. That was about the, the same time that had really come onto the scene and I was proud of it. And, and I wanna give you guys some insight into the male brain, okay? It's not a very complex place in the male brain. And, and the way that a man genuinely thinks is that if she sees me drive this car fast, if she sees me drive this car fast, she'll marry me. She'll marry. It's that simple. It doesn't matter financial stability. It doesn't matter education. It doesn't matter five-year plan. It doesn't matter if you have a house. If, you, if she can just see me drive this car really fast, right? And so I can remember back in college, Megan was, in, was with me in, this, uh, in, in my, my Civic, and we were going to go cruising through the dark roads of Rabbit Town, and we're on Brown Bridge Road, right? And man, I'm letting that big dog eat. You know what I'm saying? And we're going, and you know, I'm not even worried about it because this is my town. This is, this is my community. This is my, these are my streets, you know? Like I know every pothole. I know every nook. I know every cranny. Like, I'm, just, I'm not even sweating, driving it like I, was, like I was blindfolded. Except I forgot that when you're driving fast, things come up on you a lot faster than what you're used to. They come up on you a lot faster than what you, and before I knew it, I was in that elbow turn at the end of Brown Bridge Rose and I saw the Lord Jesus high and lifted up. <laughs> and that's how life happens, isn't it? That's how life happens. One day you're cruising and you're going and your things are, couldn't be better and you're having the time of your life. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you're in the elbow curve of life and you don't know if you're gonna make it to the other side. And you don't know if you do make it to the other side, what is waiting for you on the other side. Things are cruising in your business. Money is coming in. The business is expanding. Employees are joining. And then all of a sudden you get to a day and the money just runs out. You lose a contract that you didn't expect to lose and you can't support the employees that you thought you would be able to expect. So you're cruising, cruising and you hit the curve, right? You're newlyweds and you're so excited to begin your fairy tale together and to write your happily ever after story and you've had the big wedding production and things are going so well and then suddenly, suddenly your spouse becomes disabled at a young age and you become a caregiver for the rest of your life. You're cruising down the straightaway and then suddenly the curve jumps out and gets you. And so the question that we've been asking over the past few weeks is when we come into the curves, when we come through the storms, when we go into the valley, how is it that our joy can be durable? How is it that our joy can hold fast? How is it that we can keep moving forward and not crash and burn and not come apart at the seams and not totally unravel? This morning, what we're going to see is we're going to see Paul talking to us about the secret of durable joy, the secret, the mystery of contentment, the mystery of the ability to be content when you're cruising through the straightaways of life or when you come into the curves and you aren't even sure what's waiting for you on the other side. How is it that in, in all of those circumstances and in all of those experiences and in all of those situations, you can be satisfied at peace? content. 
If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We're coming into the close of the letter. We're going to begin in verse 10. When you get to chapter 4, verse 10, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? These are some of the most famous verses. Most of you have heard these. Philippians chapter four, beginning in verse 10 says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. When we come to verse 10, as Paul gets ready to wrap this letter up, Paul is exploding with joy. He is exploding with joy. He's come and he wants to again thank the Philippians for their generous gift. They were an impoverished church. They were not an affluent church. They were an impoverished church. And yet here Paul is in jail and Paul is hungry and Paul is cold. And so what they do is they send Epaphroditus and Epaphroditus has a care package for Paul from the church. He has money to help sustain him. He has food to tie him over. He has clothes to warm him up. And so Paul has received this generosity at the hands of the Philippians. And it says, I rejoice greatly. I am exploding. I am bursting with joy. I couldn't be happier. And he says something funny, and it's interesting because Paul actually seems to clarify himself because he understands that these words could be misinterpreted the way that he frames it up. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You indeed were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Do you hear what he said? So, so he says, look, I, I'm, at, at last you have revived your concern for me. I'm, I'm so thankful that, that your concern for me has been renewed. And then he kind of clarifies. This is, what, this is what pastors have to do, right? Because every word's kind of, you know, kind of parsed a little bit. And, you know, sometimes people take from it what you don't intend. So you kind of like back end it with good, with good intention to make sure they understand. He says, look, I, I'm not at all that I've been disappointed in you. Not at all that I have trouble with you, but just that you didn't have opportunity before. And now you do have an opportunity. So we shouldn't read this. I think it's easy to read what Paul writes in verse 10 and hear a sarcastic teenager that's hungry and ready for lunch, right? And you finally pull into the Whataburger and they're like, finally, Finally, you care about me. Finally, you love me. Finally, you're going to feed me. That's not what Paul's doing here. Instead, what Paul is saying here is Paul is saying, I am so thankful that after all of this time, after all of these years, after, after all that you've been through, after all that I've experienced, now that I am in need again, now that I am impoverished again, now that I'm in trouble again, now that I'm facing hardship again, that after all of these years, your love for me has endured. Your concern for me has carried forward. Your, your passion for the gospel is evident by the way that you are ministering to me even after all of these years. And so what he's doing is he's, he's setting up what he wants to talk about next. And he wants to make sure for the Philippians that they understand that he doesn't just love them for what they can give to him. That Paul doesn't see the Philippian church as a checkbook. He doesn't see them as, as just fundraising opportunities for his ministry to bankroll what he wants to do. Instead, what, what Paul sees them as, as brothers in Christ. And that's what sets up the conversation about contentment. 
What he wants them to see is, is I love you whether you sent this package or not. I love you whether you were able to give to me or not. I love you. In fact, in fact, because of who I am in Christ, because of what Christ has taught me, I don't even want you to think of me as having been in need. I wasn't actually in need at all because I have learned whether I have a lot or I have a little, whether I have plenty or I don't have enough, whether I am wealthy or whether I am in poverty, that I am sufficient in Christ, that I am content with what I have. And so I can receive what you have given me in love and I can say, this is just an emblem. This is just, just a marker of their love for me. And I can tell you that I love you purely. I love you totally. I love you completely because I didn't need the things that you could give me anyway. And so he begins to give us what are the richest words in all of the New Testament in terms of, of contentment in terms of a particular type of contentment. And that type of contentment is a Christ-centered, a gospel-centered contentment. And I want us to look at verses 12, uh, 11, 12, and 13 and make some observations that Paul gives over to the Philippian church about contentment that we ourselves might grow in Christ-centered contentment. The first observation that I want us to see is that contentment is learned. Contentment is learned. It, in Paul's day, there was a, a, a philosophy that's still famous to us today, and you'll, you'll be familiar with the word, but it was very, very pervasive, especially in Europe, especially in a Gentile region like Philippi. And it was the Greek philosophy of Stoicism, the, the Stoics. And what the Stoics believed is the Stoics believed that you should face and encounter every situation in life, whether it's a good encounter or a bad encounter, whether it's exciting or it's, it's debilitating, whether it's, it's good health or poor health, whether it's, it's a happy marriage or an unhappy one, that you should face all moments of life, all excitable moments of life, all joyful moments, all horrible moments of life, and you should face all of them with an even-killedness, that you should, you should have a, a resolve of the will, that you should have a security of your identity, that you should be sufficient within yourself, that you can, no matter what happens, have an iron jaw regardless of how life punches you in the face, that you should have a, a stiff lip no matter what you are to encounter. And what the Stoics believed is they believed that by building their life on a set of virtues that they could accomplish the stiff lip that they were looking for. And the chief among all of the virtues that the Stoics could attain was the virtue of contentment. The virtue of contentment. To be satisfied with yourself. To be satisfied with your circumstances. To be satisfied with your situation regardless of what that situation entailed. And by the word contentment, what they meant was very literally a self-sufficiency. That's what the word contentment means. It means to be self-sufficient. That is, they were able to go deeper within themselves when life got hard. They were able to go deeper within themselves when life got good so that never did they go low and never did they go high, but rather they were steady. They were consistent. They continued to press on. And so here's Paul. And Paul is talking to a church that has this entire philosophy as the backdrop of their, of their history, of the, of the backdrop, if they've been educated, of their education, of, of what they're familiar with. And he goes and he drops a grenade right in the middle of them when he says, I have learned in all circumstances, whether I have plenty or not enough, whether I'm abounding or I'm in deprivation, I have learned the secret. I have learned the mystery of all of it to how to be sufficient, how to be content in all of those circumstances. 
And what stands out about it is what all of us understand and what the Philippians would have understood is that you can't even be a Christian if you're dependent upon self-sufficiency, right? The gospel is always pushing against self-sufficiency. The gospel is always saying you are inadequate. You can't overcome your sin. You can't make yourself alive again. You can't save yourself. You can't follow the law good enough. You are insufficient of the task. And so here is Paul and Paul drops this grenade right in the middle of the Philippian church with in their own culture saying, look, we're, I'm, I'm like the Stoics in one way. I am content in every situation. I am self-sufficient in every situation. But it's important that we understand. And what, if we go all the way to the end of verse 13, what we can see clearly is that Paul's understanding of contentment, Paul's meaning of contentment, he's doing a turn of phrase. He's doing a, a juxtaposition so that they can see that his contentment is far better. His contentment is far richer. The self-sufficiency that he has found is far greater than the self-sufficiency that the Stoics claim. That they experience a hardship in life. They are diagnosed with cancer. They have a heart attack and their responsibility is to go deeper within themselves. But for Paul, Paul, he, he faces prison and he faces in, uh, unhealth and he faces hardship and he faces poverty and, hungry, and, and hunger and, and cold. And rather than going deeper within himself, there is one within him. There is one in whom he is resting and abiding and he doesn't have to go deeper within himself. Rather, he goes deeper and deeper within God. And so if he is able to say, I am sufficient, if he is able to say that I am self-sufficient in all the things that I face, I am content in highs and lows and hard times and good times. What he is saying is I am sufficient insofar as Christ has made me sufficient. I'm strong insofar as Christ has strengthened me. I am able insofar as Christ has enabled me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, including I can face this heart attack. I can face down my diagnosis. I can face down the collapse of my business. I can face down the loss of my retirement. I can be content in all of these situations. I can remain steady and durable in the midst of all of this hardship, not by going deeper into me, but by leaning deeper into Christ and Christ will strengthen me and Christ's strengthening me will enable me to endure all things. In fact, enabled me to have peace, joy, and satisfaction in all things. You see, contentment doesn't come naturally. I probably don't have to tell you that, but contentment doesn't come naturally. This is what Paul means when he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Do you catch that? You don't have to learn things that come to you instinctively. You don't, you don't have to learn things that come to you intuitively. You, you have to learn things that are unnatural. You have to learn things that are foreign to you. You have to learn things that are, that are outside of what comes to you instinctively. And so here's Paul and he's saying, I have learned, I have went to school. I've went to a school that everyone must go to, but very few graduate from. I've learned what needs to be learned and it can't be learned from books. Rather, it can only be learned in the school of God's providence. I have went to the school of providence and I have attained a virtue that has enabled me to have joy, rest and peace regardless of what I face. Oh, brothers and sisters, doesn't that sound enticing? Doesn't that sound like what we're looking for? See, contentment is a spirit stilled by confidence in God. 
Contentment is a spirit stilled by confidence in God. As one commentator said, contentment is an independence from the world through dependence upon God. It's the ability to be at peace with your life, regardless of what is happening in your life, because you are certain that God's hand is in it. See, for Paul, for Paul, what he understood is that the only way to mature in Christ, the only way to be resolved in Christ, the only way to be confident in Christ was to go to the school of God's providence. That is to see God's plan unfold, to see God's will take effect in your life and God's will filled with its mountaintops and with its valleys, filled with its rainy days and its sunny ones, filled with hardships and encouragements. Going to the school of God's plan unfolding for you will teach you and train you up to have confidence in the God who made the plan to begin with. It will teach you that God is sufficient, not just in the straightaways of life, not just on the other side of the curve looking back, but while you're facing the curve itself, while you're unsure what is around the bend itself, that God will train you through his providence, according to his will, how he is sufficient, how he is able, how he is strong enough, how he is willing to supply you through every circumstance that you find in your life. And as you grow in the Lord, as you face some stuff in your life, as you face hardship and as you take on scars, as you work out spiritual muscles that have long since atrophied or never before it developed, what you begin to see is, oh Lord, as hard as that is, as hard as that was, I can see your hands all over it. As much as I don't want to face it again, God, I can see your presence right in the middle of it. Oh God, I look back over the course of my life and there are so many ways that I would have written my story differently if it had been up to me. But now, now looking back over the course of my life, looking over the storyline that is me, I see your hand so supremely, so divinely, so strongly that I wouldn't change a second of it. That you have made me who I am in you because you had it written from the beginning. You knew who I was. You knew who I was to be. You knew where I was headed. And Lord, having been in the school of your providence, I have learned looking back that now as I look forward, now as I look around me and I don't have enough, now as I look around me and I feel a great need, now as I look at my circumstances and they may tempt me to anxiety, I look at them and I remember your faithfulness so much that today, today I can be content. Today I can rest, even though I don't know how this is going to play out. See, this is the maturity that we're looking to grow in in the faith, right? Contentment is one of the truest markers of spiritual maturity. Contentment is one of the truest markers of spiritual maturity. The happiest people are the people who need the least to be happy. The happiest people are the people who need the least to be be happy. That is, it is those who can be content regardless of what they encounter. Those that can be content regardless of what they experience. Those who can be content regardless of what they have or what they don't have, what they can buy or what they can't buy. That no matter what, they can look and they can say with Jesus on the eve of his own crucifixion, not my will, but your will be done. Oh God, I would write my checking account bigger. I would write my salary bigger. I would 
write my house nicer. I would write my marriage easier. I would write my health better. Oh, but Lord, I will trust in your providence. I will trust in your sovereignty and entrusting my life according to your plan and not my plan, your will and not my will. Oh, Lord, I will be content regardless of what I encounter in the days ahead. That's spiritual maturity, brothers and sisters. And that is the key that unlocks durable joy in your life. That's the key that unlocks durable joy in the midst of a difficult marriage. That's the key that unlocks durable joy in the midst of an income that's less than you think it should be. See, brothers, it is to be so utterly surrendered to the will of God that no matter how difficult or how terrifying, you can rejoice because of your confidence in the Lord. I wonder this morning, what does your contentment say about your confidence in God? What does your contentment say about your confidence in God? Do you know who has to have everything the way they want it in order to be happy? A child, a child. A child has to have everybody like them. A child has to have everybody approve of them. A child has to be able to buy what they want to buy and eat what they want to eat and go where they want to go. And if everything in their life is just right, then the child can be happy. Oh, oh, but the wise man, the wise man, the mature man, the immovable rock of a woman, the one that is durable in their joy, they are the ones that can say, it's okay of what I have or what I don't have. It doesn't matter what I can buy or what I can't buy. I don't need everything that I want in order to be happy. No, no, no. I need Christ. I need Christ and I have Christ and I will be content. What does your contentment say about your confidence in God? Does it reveal a mature faith that is stilled by God's sovereign hand or does it reveal a shaky infantile insecurity that needs everything and everybody to be just right in order to rest? Brings us to the second observation about contentment this morning. The second observation about Christ-centered contentment that I want us to see is that contentment is comprehensive. Content, Christ-centered contentment is comprehensive. He says in verse 12, it's, it's really striking. Let's read verse 12 together. He says, I, I, I know how to, be, to so, so he's learned and now he knows. You see, do you see how he's, he's made this growth, how he's matured in the faith? I learned and now I know. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And it's striking just how comprehensive his contentment is, isn't it? That, that if he has a lot, he's content. If he has a little, he's content. If things are going really well, he's content. If things are going really poorly, he's content. It's, it's comprehensive regardless of what's going on in his situation. He says, I'm satisfied when I have food and when I don't. I'm rested when I have pl a place to sleep and I'm rested when I have to sleep outside. I'm at peace when everyone receives me, me with love and I'm at peace when I'm rejected entirely. And there's, there's two different ways, there's two different ends of the spectrum that, that it's, it's kind of North Pole, South Pole and everything else in between, right? And one of these in the conversation of contentment is really expected by us. And one of these in the conversation about contentment is maybe unexpected. So the first one, the expected one is I want you to see that he says contentment is joy in the midst of a deficit. Contentment is joy in the midst of a deficit. You know, joy is unnatural when you don't have enough, isn't it? Joy is unnatural when you don't have enough. Like on Christmas morning, when you go down, you just remember, like I remember when I was 14 years old, y'all, I walked down and there is a dirt bike. 
You know what I'm saying? Kawasaki KE199 model. And, and, and man, I, I flew, I flew the rest of the day, like floating on clouds, right? And joy is natural when you get the dirt bike. Joy is natural when you're on your honeymoon. Joy is natural when you get the promotion or you get the job that you've been aiming at. Joy is natural in those moments. But when you get home from the honeymoon and things get hard, joy is less natural, isn't it? When there's a deficit in your marriage, when, when, when suddenly you're unable not to buy dirt bikes, but, but you're unable to even pay all of your bills and your mortgage runs late and your credit cards are elevating. Joy is unnatural in the midst of that deficit when more money is going out than it is coming in. And yet here is Paul and what he is saying is, I know what it's like to experience deficit in my life. I know what it's like to go through deprivation, periods of deprivation in my life. And yet I have learned, I know how when I am in deficit, when I am experiencing deprivation, I know how to have joy. I know how to have something that is unnatural. Notice how he frames it up. It's the perspective. Notice how he frames it. He says, when I'm brought low. When I'm brought low, what, what does that tell us? What does that tell us? Paul doesn't think his being in jail is the result of his own misfortune. Paul doesn't think that his being brought low, his being low and cold, and high, he doesn't believe that is the result of just bad luck, right? Like, like I'm the kind of guy sometimes, I'm like, if I had bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. And yet here's Paul and he's saying, I'm hungry, I'm cold, I'm not where I want to be, I'm not with whom I want to be with, and yet I, I know it is no accident. Instead, I know it is the unfolding of providence that God himself has brought me low, that God himself, as he, as he robbed Job of what was good to him and dear to him and love, that I can be like Job and say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord because God, God has brought me low. It is according to his providence, not my misfortune. It is according to his plan, not my missteps or misdeeds. Oh man. In the prosperity culture, this pushes back on just about everything we've ever learned to believe about God, doesn't it? In the prosperity culture, what we've come to classify as blessed is a promotion, is a raise. It's when you get a nice bonus that you didn't expect. It's when you're able to get the car for Christmas as a surprise and you didn't see it coming. And all of that is hashtag blessed, right? But when we read the New Testament, when we read the New Testament, the mark of the favor of God was not given in prosperity. The mark of the favor of God was not given in wealth. When we read the New Testament, the mark of the favor of God, the mark of a unique work of grace in a man or a woman was not prosperity and ease of living. It was hardship, suffering, and persecution. It was to walk through the valley of the shadow of death because God has brought you low. Because God has brought you down into the valley. He has brought you down in among the bones of the dead that you might learn something far richer than a great income, far deeper than an easy life, far better than a simple smile on your face that you might be able to learn something that is rich and deep and powerful about the providence of God that can sustain you in a way that nothing you can find at the Oxford Exchange can sustain you. That is that if 
You wrote your story, you would write it easy. But if you wrote your story, you would miss out on the depths of God and you would miss out on the opportunities to glory in Christ that the mature believer is able to experience and to know. And so Paul was so utterly surrendered to the plan of God and so utterly satisfied by his enjoyment of Christ that he could be content and joyful in whatever he faced because he knew whatever he faced and in whatever he encountered, the hand of God was there. The hand of God was there. Where do you find deficit in your life? Where do you find deficit in your life? Did you think you'd be married by now? Did you already expect to have children and to not have any trouble? Did you think the adoption would go more simply than it has? Did you think your business would just trend upward always? Did you think that your wife would always just be excited to see you when you came home? Did you think that your family would never come upon hard times or that your health would never quit on you? Where is the deficit in your life? Oh, brothers and sisters, it is your joy or lack thereof in the midst of that deficit that will prove to you what you believe about Christ, what you actually believe about how satisfying, about how wonderful, about how rich, about how contenting the glory of Christ truly is. It will prove whether or not you are ultimately in love with your own plan or if you are wholly surrendered to the will of God. Oh, brothers and sisters, what is your deficit saying about you? What is your deficit saying about you? And that brings us to the other side of this comprehensive contentment that he's talking about, the, the side that we don't often think of in terms of contentment, and it is to be content with a lot, right? To be content with plenty, to be abounding. And now, if you're like me, this is how I would frame it up. Like, God, if, if you're looking to teach us contentment and you're looking for, you know, lab rats, I'll, I'll volunteer to be the one that, tr that tries contentment with a lot, you know? Like, I'll be the one that tries contentment with great affluence, great wealth, great prominence, great ease of life. Like, like, Lord, let me be the test patient for that, right? Except that Jesus says that it is more difficult for a rich man to get a, into heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Calvin says that there is more to learn about contentment in the midst of great prosperity than there is in the midst of great poverty. You see, where joy is unnatural, when you have a deficit, it's faithfulness that is unnatural when you have great surplus. Unfaithfulness, that contentment is faithfulness in the midst of a surplus, just as contentment is joy in the midst of a deficit. You see, a surplus is going to demonstrate whether your satisfaction is in God or it's going to demonstrate whether or not your satisfaction is in what God can provide. Have you ever had a friend and you don't really hear from him all that often and then all of a sudden he's, he's about to go and he's gonna need you to help him move his house and then suddenly like you're his bestie you know, from way back and he's calling you and he's checking in on you and he's, he's taking you to lunch and you're the greatest thing that he's ever seen. And then when you throw your back out, moving his couch, he's dead. You're dead to him. Like he doesn't need you anymore. And you just think, fool, who do you think you are? You're not my friend. You don't care about me. You don't know anything about what. what? Oh, but how often is it that we treat God that way? How is it, how often is it that we treat God that way? 
If, let me ask, if you had everything that you could ever want in surplus, if your health was good to surplus, if your family was going perfectly to the end of surplus, if you had more money than you could spend, if you had the car that you dream of, if you had the address that you've always wanted, how much time would you spend with God? How much time would you spend with God? That is, is all of your time spent with God, pleading with God to change your circumstances, pleading with God to give you more, pleading with God to meet up your insatiable desire for an easier life, or is your time with God spent to get to know God, to commune with God, to enjoy God, to be satisfied with God, to walk with God? That is, are you seeking pleasure from God or are you seeking pleasure in God? Are you seeking pleasure from God or are you seeking pleasure in God? It's more difficult to lead a faithful Christian life from surplus than it is from deficit. It's more difficult to be content with an abundance than it is with a deficit because a surplus, a surplus is teaching you what kingdom it is that you're living for. A, a, a surplus is teaching you whether it is that you love God and his kingdom or if you love yourself and your stuff. The question that professing Christian after professing Christian has answered no to is, do you believe so firmly in heaven, so passionately about the will of God that you can live beneath your means now? See, the great, the, the great paradox about the hardships of the church, of trying to send missionaries to the nations, about ministering to the poor, is that we, have, we make $50,000 and we live a $50,000 lifestyle. We make $75,000, we live an $80,000 lifestyle. We make $100,000, we have a $100,000 lifestyle. But there's nothing written that says that someone making 50 can't live on 30 and serve the kingdom with 20. Oh, brothers and sisters, it ought to be an oxymoron to have a house poor Christian because Christians don't need the house. We don't need the house to tell us that we are important. We don't need the house to say that we matter. We don't need the house to say that we have enough. No, we have Christ. We have Christ. We have his kingdom. It is secure, not just now. It is secure forever. So I can do without the house. I can do without the stuff. I have Jesus. Oh, brothers and sisters, if you have a lot and you don't need a lot, then by God's grace, you can help a lot. If you have a lot, but don't need a lot, then by God's grace, you can help a lot. That God can use you to reach the nations. God can use you to resource missionaries that you've never even heard of to do things that are incomprehensible to you by his own name and for his own glory. God can use you to baptize more teenagers. God can use you to put food in the mouths of the hungry, to help men like Paul in cold jails that are lonely, to be filled and bursting with joy. God can use you and brothers and sisters, you can't buy that kind of joy. You can't buy that kind of joy. So in your surplus, in your surplus, what does it say about your heart? What does it say about your satisfaction? What does it say about your contentment? And that brings us to our final observation that Christ-centered contentment is supernatural. That Christ-centered contentment is supernatural. 
This is in verse 13, a verse that many of you know and quote or have heard quoted, a, a verse that we see written on the eye black of football players, the, the verse that we have taped to the top of, of weight rooms beneath the bench press. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we've talked all morning long about how there is nothing natural about contentment. It is unnatural to be joyful in the midst of deficit. It is unnatural to be faithful in the midst of surplus. And that is because Christ-centered contentment is different than the Stoics. It is different than the Greek philosophers. Christ-centered contentment is the result of the Almighty God at work in you to transform your nature, to shape your character, to give you a virtue that you are incapable of in your own so that you don't have a stiff lip and an iron jaw. You have a soft heart and a rejoicing spirit at peace in the sovereignty of God. It's a strength that doesn't come from you. It's a strength that comes from the presence of Christ in you. In verse 12, he talks about the secret of contentment or the mystery of of contentment. And verse 13 is the answer. The secret to contentment is this. Christ is in me. Christ is making me strong. Christ has satisfied me. Christ is too wonderful for me. I don't need everything else. I have Christ. The secret to contentment is total satisfaction in Jesus. So it's interesting is as famous as Philippians 4.13 is, it's probably the most misquoted, stripped of its context verse in all of the Bible. I I, I almost laugh when I see football players run out with Philippians 4.13 on their eye black because Philippians 4.13 does not mean I can win at all costs. I can win no matter what happens to me. I can play through injury. I can do things that I ordinarily can't do because Christ is in me and Christ is strengthening me. What it means is, is if I lose, if I play the worst game of my life, if I break my leg, If I'm paralyzed as a result of today's game, through Christ, I can be content. And through Christ, I can be satisfied. It doesn't mean I can lift an amount of weight that is far greater than any amount of weight that I've ever been able to lift. It means that if I take this bar off the rack and it shatters my ulna, I can look up and I can say, praise be to God. I don't like this, but I love him and I am content. I am content. It doesn't mean that if I quote Philippians 4 13 I can go before a public speaking opportunity at my company and say I can do all things through Christ and that immediately all of my nerves will go away and my presentation will be dynamic what it means is is that if I do so poorly that I'm heckled off the stage and relieved of my job that even in that even in that Christ is in me and Christ is strengthening me and I don't need the job and I don't need the people and I don't need the approval because I have Christ and I can be content in all of those things. That Philippians 4.13 is the secret that unlocks durable joy in our lives if we can get to the place in God's providence that we can say whatever comes, whatever happens, whatever I endure, whatever I experience, whatever I sacrifice, whatever I lay down, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can live without, do without, go without as long as I have Christ. Oh, and what you see, 
What you have to see as he writes this from a jail in the midst of a missionary journey is that contentment. Christ-centered contentment is the key that unlocks full, the full throttle Christian life. That all the time we aren't going and we aren't sending and we aren't giving because we're thinking, we're thinking, what if I have to give up? I, it, it would cost me so much. It would be so difficult. What if I don't ever have? What if I don't ever get the husband that I'm looking for? What if I don't ever have the financial security that I'm longing for? What if, what if, what if? And so when God calls us to radical obedience, we pull back, we pull back. When God calls us to go and to move to the ends of the earth, we pull back. What if? What will I miss out on? What will I not have? What will I not experience? When it comes to discipling our children, we pull them back and disciple them in the ways of the world because we think, what if they miss out on the experiences that everyone else has? Oh, oh, but if we are content, if Christ is enough, there is no pulling back. There is no letting up. There is no checking down. Instead, 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 it is full throttle, pedal to the metal, to the ends of the earth, to everything that I have, for everything that he is accomplishing here in this life, on this earth, whether I am flying down the straightaways or I can't see what's on the end of the curve, I can accelerate because regardless of what it is, if he is calling me to it, he will see me through it. And he, he, he is enough. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at nine o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.